Welcome to Behind the Headlines, your Friday morning Utah news roundup from the Salt Lake Tribune and KCPW. Heard around the straight, the state that is on Utah Public Radio. I'm Roger McDonough. Well, a coronavirus-heavy show today. We'll be discussing the not-so-uniform coronavirus response in Utah schools, the U.S. Department of Education's investigation into Utah's ban on schools enacting their own mask mandates, how health officials hope personal stories like that of a vernal woman who got COVID after declining a vaccine will help change minds, and what the data from a European soccer championship can tell us about the spread of coronavirus at sports events in the United States. And uh, joining me for this conversation all via Zoom, we've got Salt Lake Tribune reporter Becky Jacobs. Good morning, Becky. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, reporter Bethany Rogers is with us. Good morning, Bethany. Good morning, Roger. And Tribune news columnist Robert Gerke. Welcome, Robert. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. And later in the show, you'll hear from Andy Larson on the Delta variant and uh, sporting events. So hang on for that as well. Um, we are sticking to requesting comments via Twitter uh, because, well, actually, because the guy who answers the phone normally is out. So you can tweet to at KCPW and we will try to respond here on the air. Um, Becky Jacobs, we will start with you. You this week reported a story that looked at what happens when school kids get COVID, meaning how different school districts, um, different individual schools, in fact, are handling that. And uh, that's where I want to start before we plow into other coronavirus territory. Um, there's a kind of hodgepodge response here when it comes to when parents are notified about exposures and what happens after that. Maybe actually, maybe, we, Becky, we can zoom out just a little bit to start and um, talk about why there isn't a uniform response to COVID in Utah schools, meaning why are all schools not doing the same thing? Is that easily answered? Uh, well, it's as easily answered as this article was. I think we realize there's a lot of confusion going into the school year this year of how things are working, what are the protocols. And I mean, we are reporters at the Tribune following this every day, and it was confusing for us to reach out to school districts, yeah. health departments, um, different documents to try to put this all in one compact, easy, accessible place. And so I think part of it is that there is this year with the legislature leaving a lot of it up to the county decision with masks or how things are running. Um, and so it can vary across. There's the overall Utah Department of Health recommendations for everyone, but I mean, those are recommendations. So to find out what's happening in your district, you really have to look locally. And so we tried to give a broad picture of what generally schools are doing this year. And one sort of big overarching picture is the fact that um, there are some places in Utah where, as was the case last year, masks are required in schools um, this year. I mean, I think we all know that Salt Lake City has done this, but there are um, a couple of other places as well where that's the case. Is that true, Becky? Yeah, that's left now to the local county health departments um, and the county councils. So Grand County School District is the only one that has really gone successfully through the process that the legislature set up. Um, but yesterday there was the announcement that in Tooele they will require masks if there's an outbreak of COVID-19 at their schools. And that also came from the county health department. But we know that Salt Lake County had tried that recently um, and that didn't work out. So really the two places to watch are Grand 
Grand in Tooele and Salt Lake City. Okay. Um, and then turning to, again, the, the response in the schools and, um, you know, when it comes to exposure at school, um, what is happening in terms of when a parent is notified that their kid may have been um, exposed, meaning near to somebody, another student or a teacher who has COVID? How does that play out in, uh, in the different schools here in Utah? Yeah, I think one thing we really wanted to answer, you know, if if a kid is kind of near my kid, will I get notified or do they have to be right next to them? And I think there's a general idea that schools, you know, if there is like a test positive in a classroom or in a group activity, they will notify parents. Um, But in Salt Lake County, we really looked more at what they're doing and the the school districts are working closely with the county health department. And so, um, you know, if there is the school, School district will create a list of who was nearby and then contract tracers and the county health department will start to look to see, you know, was were they vaccinated? Hmm. Um, have they had COVID recently? Were they wearing masks? And from there, they contact families. Um, so I think there's a general sense of trying to be proactive with dashboards and notifying people. Um, and they also encourage if your kid has COVID, I mean, to contact your school district because that will speed up being able to notify hmm. other families. Um, the idea here just on the, I'm sorry, I'm sticking with the, one of the comments that you said, you said that it depends upon whether or not your child is vaccinated or whether or not they were wearing a mask. Um, and, and the idea there is that masks are doing something to help in this situation, which is that, um, you know, it's helping to prevent the spread of the virus, which is what the, the public health officials tell us. Um, but there's no universal guidance here, um, on 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 wearing masks the way there was last year, uh, but let's keep plowing on here, Becky. Let's say that your kid had this exposure. You get contacted by somebody from uh, the school district or maybe from the health department, and um, you're hoping for the best. But then let's say that you're, or, or what happens then? Are you supposed to, if your kid had uh, an exposure at school, what are they supposed to do? Yeah, if you don't fall into those categories that we talked about before, um, in Salt Lake County, they tell you really have two options at that point. You can either quarantine at home for 10 days or you can wear a mask at school for 10 days. And then with either of those, you have the option on day seven to get tested. Um, And if you're negative, you can go back to school and you don't have to wear a mask. Um, so it, there's lots of, it's kind of like a flow chart, you know, there isn't a clear, easy option, but really from these recommendations, I think there's a lot of push for common sense. You know, if you think you've been exposed or you think you might be sick, you should probably stay away from people and take some precautions right now. And the same is obviously true is, you know, if, if your child then tests positive for COVID, they, they are required to stay home. Um, or what does that picture look like, Becky? Yeah, I think then when if you test positive, they were saying, you know, stay home, quarantine, don't go anywhere to any activities, make sure that you're symptom free and fever free, get tested, follow all the guidelines. Um, So, again, it's, you know, if you think you are or you are, you need to try to prevent that spread. I'm going to complicate things even just a a tiny bit further because there is this uh, test to stay protocol. Um, that is still in effect under um, uh, under the Utah under Utah law. Uh, remind us what test to stay means, Becky. What is that? 
Yeah, so that is still in place this year, but it's different than last year. You know, there's still the thresholds for um, when you need to do testing, depending on how many kids are in the school. Um, and it, But what's different is, you know, the emphasis this year is on keeping kids in the schools. So with test to stay, you're not shutting down. Um, if if you test negative, you get to keep staying in person learning and you have no symptoms. Um, but if you test positive, then, um, you know, it, it also depends there because if you're fully vaccinated, you can keep going and learning um, after you're done with an isolation period. So really it's to monitor cases, hmm. um, but not to close down the schools this year. Okay. And just, I don't know if you can answer this, but the, um, the basics of test to stay are that when there's a certain amount of coronavirus detected in a school, then you then you enter this phase of test to stay or or test, I guess, to show that you can't stay for a, a little bit. Um, is that right? Yeah. So with test to stay, um, schools are required to hold that event when, you know, when they have 1500 or more students and have 2% of their students testing positive for COVID-19, or if they have fewer than 1500 and have 30 students test positive um, within 14 days. So it, it's when they're monitoring their cases and that's triggered, then they bring in this testing to do it throughout the school. But again, they still need permission from parents to be able to test students. So a parent could say, I don't want my child to get tested. What happens to that child then? Yeah, so it, those who decline to get tested have to quarantine at home for 10 days. Um, and thank you. So, yeah, yeah <laughs> it, there's a lot of contingencies with this. I, I can't tell if we've gone too uh, sort of wonky in this segment, um, but hopefully people have been able to follow along. And Becky, I will, I'm going to encourage people to check out all of the details um, in your article. But um, as you said, they should consult their, I guess, individual district or, or individual school if they have any questions. That's the, the most direct route to understand uh, what's happening at their schools. I imagine most parents at this point um, have done that. But that's the route to go. Um, Robert Gerke, we will bring you into the conversation, uh, Salt Lake Tribune news columnist. And uh, uh, the school situation, um, you know, despite Becky's and, and Courtney's um, awesome reporting on this, it's still hard to wrap my mind around. You, you know, you can't stop education. You can't stop um, intellectual development, intellectual development of, of kids. Um, I don't Maybe I'll ask you this, Robert. What should Utah be doing for schools that would make all of this easier and clearer? Well, I mean, I, I think, yeah, you've hit it on the head is that the, what came what became abundantly clear from this story that Becky and, and Courtney did is just how all over the board the, the, the rules are, frankly. I mean, it's just kind of every district has its own policies and in, in, in a lot of ways are doing things slightly different. Alpine, for example, says that these you know, these quarantine rules are just sort of advisory and parents can do what they want and send their kids if they want. I mean, it's 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 a scattershot approach, which I guess maybe that's maybe that's our system. Maybe we've got local control. Um, but, you know, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, the, the the long term objective, the main objective is to keep kids in school, keep kids learning, keep kids healthy. I think that's I, I think everybody agrees on that. And and we're seeing the difficulty in that right now because we're seeing this dramatic increase in cases among young people. And and, you know, these tests to stay protocols are going to be triggered in a lot of schools probably in the next week or so. Two um, percent doesn't sound like very much, but it, it it ends up being a fair amount. So, you know, it's going to take us a little while to get to that point. But it's you know, it's 
it, it's it's difficult. I mean, it's a it's a catch twenty two because sure. you want you want kids in school, um, but you put kids in classrooms uh, without masks and in a crowded, and you're going to end up with with uh, a real difficult situation. I mean, ideally, yes, we've had the mask discussion for months now, and sure. and and it's it's clear that most of these districts are not interested in doing that. Most of the counties are not interested in doing that, and so it puts us in a in a in a perilous situation and we're just going to have to watch this play out because uh we'll discuss it later i guess but the 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 legislature and the governor seem to disinclined to do anything beyond what we're doing right now and and i want to get to that but i and i'm also sort of curious about what changed from last year that i mean i know that obviously the the rules changed but what it was that you know last year schools required masks this year they don't and um yeah, yeah, but it's a, it was a political it was a political calculation by the legislature and uh, to take away the authority of the governor uh, to to have kids wear masks and so um, so they're not and they're not you know last year we had a lot of remote uh, distance learning last year you know we had uh, you know staggered schedules staggered lunches masks we had all of these things in place last year that this year they've just decided they're not going to do um, or uh, and to the extent they're doing them, they're doing them, you know, intermittently or, or in a scattershot way. So Robert, uh, and yeah. the other thing we have this year, just just, to, you sure. know, is we have 10 times as many cases among the school age population to start the year. And so, um, you know, and the, and the numbers keep growing. Uh, and, and so if you're a parent right now, I'm, I would imagine, well, I am a parent of a high school student. Um, you know, it's 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 a little nerve wracking, especially if you are a parent of one of those students who's under the age of 12, who's not eligible to be vaccinated. Uh, we've talked on this show before and Andy's talked on this show before about how kids typically, you know, as a general rule, uh, don't get as sick. They're less likely to be hospitalized and less likely to die. But we are seeing those hospitalizations rising and we did have a death yesterday and yeah. uh, yeah. reported yesterday of a, of a young woman uh, in Salt Lake County. Um, and so it, it does happen. And then these kids go out and they, they also spread the disease. And that's, in, that's something else that the science has shown us that uh, from the university of Utah study of Salt Lake schools last year, it showed us that uh, children who are infected either at home or at school, uh, often take the disease home or to the, to you know spread it elsewhere. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a difficult situation. It's one that you know we had a lot of as you touched on. We had a lot of precautions in place last year that are not in place this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even even something like the test to play, where they would test students before you know they were participating in sports or activities. That's that's not something that they're doing this year. It's the it's sort of on the backside when it, after students get sick, we're doing the test to stay. So it's a, it's a different approach, a different mentality. Um, <laughs> the other thing we have this year is a Delta variant that we didn't have last year that is is far more contagious. So well, and, and uh, Robert, hold hold that thought for just a moment because I want to I want to go back to Becky Jacobs um, and squeeze in a, another story that um, you know we we started going down the road of the rules changing on uh, school districts requiring masks or not. And I want to uh, go to a, a story that your colleague, Becky Courtney Tanner, reported on um, a federal investigation into the state of Utah over that law that prohibits school districts from enacting their own mask mandates um, you know, of their own accord. What can, can you just tell us what this federal investigation is based on? Basically, why is the Department of Education taking this tack? Um, and is it just Utah, Becky? 
Yeah, um, no, Utah is one of five states. So the U.S. Department of Education announced that they're doing a review with a civil rights investigation into Utah, Iowa, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Tennessee, basically for ban on schools enacting mask mandates. And the idea behind this is that it is potentially discriminatory towards students with disabilities or health conditions um, that might make them more susceptible to COVID. So as an example, if a student is immunocompromised and if the school doesn't have a mask mandate or a able to enforce one that could prevent them from being able to go to school in person because they could get sick. Um, so that's ongoing now, but it was announced this week. Um, and it, yeah, I guess we have to stay tuned for that, but it plays into this debate that's hmm. still going on between state leaders with how are we going to handle masks going forward? And Robert Gerke, this actually brings me back to you and, and um, we'll linger here a little bit longer because it feeds into a column that you wrote um, and we might as well tackle it now. This is uh, the press conference, this um, uh, COVID briefing the governor and some healthcare professionals gave, um, uh, you know, having to do with uh, masks themselves. This isn't about the investigation itself, but about um, masks. And actually, I have a couple of clips here that I want to play that lead into your column. And the first of these is Dr. Mark Harrison, who is the head of Intermountain Healthcare. And the second is then a couple of clips of Governor Spencer Cox back to back. Um, take a quick listen, and then we'll come back for your comments, uh, and we'll tackle your column. I'm Mark Harrison. I'm a president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Um, I just took off an N95. I have an incurable blood cancer called multiple myeloma, and um, I'm post bone marrow transplant and an experimental therapy called CAR-T therapy, and I'm in remission right now. But I'm also profoundly immunodeficient. I would normally avoid a group like this, but I'm here today because what we're talking about is so important. By the way, I hope that all of you who aren't wearing masks aren't carrying the Delta variant, because if you are, you could kill me. Um, look, I also want to be clear, and, and this is, again, the mask thing is so, so, so blown out of proportion. Let me just say this, masks are not as effective of, as most of the pro-mask crowd are arguing. We know that they're, they're, they're just not. They, they are a tool and they do have some impact. The anti-maskers and the extreme maskers all we just need to get over ourselves a little bit and try to have a little bit of common sense here. All right. Again, that was uh, Mark Harrison, CEO of Intermountain Healthcare and uh, and Utah Governor Spencer Cox and Robert Gerke. Um, I'll just turn to you and say, what was you know, what was this press conference about to you? I, I couldn't tell you what this press conference was about because, uh, you know, they, ostensibly it was supposed to be our briefing on on our current COVID situation and our state response to it. it. It was pretty clear and you can get the sense of it from the juxtaposition of those two clips that Spencer Cox didn't have a clue of what the state was going to do to try to stem this current surge. Um, he, you know, he blamed the legislature for tying his hands, which is, you know, to to an extent true. Um, you know, the the laws that were passed during the special session and 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 during the prior sessions have, to a large extent, limited his ability to respond to this. But then, you know, you you, you get this you get this interesting contrast between a, a doctor whose life depends on potential or potentially depends on people in the room with him wearing masks and you have Spencer Cox telling people that, you know, masks aren't as effective as most people think. I don't know how effective most people think masks are. That may be true. I don't know. But, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that people are wearing masks are 
helping to prevent the spread of this virus. Uh, the people who are not wearing masks are perpetuating the spread of the virus, and they're the ones who are clogging up emergency rooms and 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 uh, intensive care beds, uh, and and jeopardizing the health of people like you know. Dr. Harrison, who are who are in, you know, potentially a life and death situation. It, it was a really frustrating news conference. You said um, you said that the that the governor's hands are are tied by lawmakers. And he then met with lawmakers this this past week, ostensibly to talk about doing things um, differently. What what came out of out of that out of that uh, discussion? Well, I mean, as you might expect, nothing. Uh, it sounds like the, the legislature is not uh, willing to issue any sort of statewide mask mandates. The counties continue to, you know, balk at statewide mask mandates outside of, I think, as you mentioned, the, the Summit County, Grand County uh, examples. Summit's a little bit uh, contingent on on reaching a certain threshold. But so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like nothing really came out of it. Um, there's apparently, you know, a, a push for an, a monoclonal antibody using monoclonal antibodies, um, which is fine, I guess, as a, as a treatment for for people who are already infected, but it doesn't do anything to address the situation we have uh, both in the community uh, with the large number of cases we're having and and in the schools more specifically. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it would appear that nothing uh, is going to be done um, and we're just going to kind of ride this out and watch people get sick and, and hospitalized and, you know, eventually die. Um, well, OK, we, we really do need to head to our first break in the show, but um Robert Kirky, just on the on the mask wearing, I'm I'm, I'm going back to the governor's uh, contradictory statement. Um, you know, after the comment by the the head of Intermountain Healthcare and and others in the press conference and other healthcare professionals, that the evidence is there that masks help prevent the spread of COVID. Um, and even as the governor said in that clip, we know they do something. He said that in in his statement. I guess why? What was the what was the point of the governor downplaying that? Well, I mean, I think he's trying to bridge this divide. We've got a we've got a gulf, as we do in every aspect of society. It seems like everything that gets politicized turns into a a hard right or hard left. Uh, you know, you've got to join join your tribe, and and it's unfortunate. And I think he was trying to you know marginalize or or you know marginalize marginalize the militants, the anti mask militants, and those who are frankly you know pretty adamant about being pro mask. But and he was trying to speak to people in the middle uh, and encourage them to to mask to some extent. But I think he I think he did a disservice. Because, as I mentioned, it's not the anti-maskers or it's not the pro-mask, the extreme maskers, as he puts it, who are who are causing the problems. Uh, and, and so, you know, and he did acknowledge that there's uh, some effect. We can argue about how much, but there is some effect in, in limiting the spread of the virus. Um, so, you know, I it's not a it's not a it's a false equivalency. It's not a both sides situation. And, and, and I think it was really unfortunate and a real disservice to, you know, the people who are extreme maskers, as he puts it, are the ones who are doing exactly what the governor and medical professionals and science has told them to do for the last year plus. And 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 then to, you know, lump them in with people who are are ignoring that uh, advice and endangering other people's lives, I think is just I think it was irresponsible. And I think it was a really unfortunate, um, uh, you know, way for him to put this, especially as, as you've noted in the in the juxtaposition of those clips after the doctors and medical professionals were begging for people to help because ICUs are overloaded and, and people are dying unnecessarily 
because they're getting infected with this, with, with this virus. Okay. It's, it was I, I, it was it was a pretty shameful performance. That's Robert Gerke, who is a news columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune. And uh, while we've carried on for quite a while here and we need to head to a break, um, thanks to both Robert and Becky Jacobs for uh, for their coverage there. And there's still more to come from this past week in Utah news, including uh, a story of warning from a woman who chose not to get vaccinated and who then got COVID-19. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on KCPW and Utah Public Radio. We'll be right back. A teacher in Afghanistan says she feels abandoned by the U.S. after promises to heal the country. It is just treating a patient to the half and then just leaving the operation in the middle for no reason and telling the patient, you know, I opened your heart, I fixed your heart bleeding, now you stitch back yourself. On the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, and this week on The Splendid Table, we're talking things you gotta try. From dunking your Oreos in red wine to the African supergrain Fonio, it's delicious stuff you may have never thought of, heard of, or dreamt of. Plus, I try my best to convince everyone to make a ratatouille recipe that will literally take you all day. That's all coming up on The Splendid Table. Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. Welcome back to Behind the Headlines. I'm Roger McDonough, and I'm joined by Salt Lake Tribune reporters Becky Jacobs and Bethany Rogers, and by news columnist Robert Gerke. It is our live Friday morning Utah news review, and you can join us with your own question, uh, questions and comments by tweeting to at KCPW. Um, and uh, again, let's see. Let's turn to Bethany Rogers now. Excuse me. Uh, Bethany, we will bring you into the conversation, and uh, thanks for your patience today on the show. Health officials in Uinta County are hoping that uh, stories of people who didn't get vaccinated and who then got badly ill, that those stories will help convince others to get vaccinated. Um, Uinta County isn't the only place, of course, using that tactic, but you highlighted the story of a woman named Stormy who um, who appears in a video for the county health department. I guess, can you just tell us Stormy's story? She's, she's a healthcare professional, right? But uh, she was hesitant to get the vaccine? Yeah, and she's, um, she's a director of physician services at Ashley Regional Medical Center in Vernal. So um, her job at the beginning of the pandemic was to help the hospital source supplies um, that were, you know, there were shortages of masks and other PPE as we, you know, had remember from last year. And so that, that was kind of um, what she was doing at the start of the pandemic. Um, so she was close to the front lines of that, but when it came time to, uh, you know, provide vaccines to hospital workers, she was really torn between, um, the information she was hearing from her colleagues and, um, you know, trusted medical professionals around her. She's not herself, you know, um, a healthcare worker, right. um, she does work in the hospital, um, and though she trusted and, and, you know, respected the input from her colleagues, she was also torn by what she was hearing from some people in the community, from social media, 
um, and, you know, just others in her orbit that had, uh, you know, concerns about the vaccine. So she um, turned down her opportunity um, to get vaccinated in um, the middle of December when, you know, she first got that opportunity. And she is pretty transparent about the fact that she was vocally opposed. She thought that um, COVID wouldn't really affect her. She is only 37. She's really healthy, has no underlying health conditions. And she just thought that she wasn't at a very high risk for, um, you know, a serious illness from COVID. So she chose to take a pass and, um, you know, just a matter of a couple of weeks later um, at a, at a, you know, holiday gathering um, contracted COVID and, and fell seriously ill with it. Yeah. And, and she ended up, um, hospitalized in the in the same hospital where where she was working i uh, um you know i don't know she describes a lot of tough moments in your article and it's it's um it's a a very it's a hard read actually but it, but it's she's you know she's now trying to help change the narrative around it but there was this point where she got to where she was feeling remorseful i guess a, a bit guilty um all of the things that a person might feel uh, as i said it's a tough read and she describes this moment um where Bethany, where she said like she felt like her internal light was going out, like she was getting close, I guess, to not surviving this disease. Um, yeah, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit about her thinking on in those moments and then how she decided to join in this campaign to try and get people vaccinated? Um, so, yeah, she says that she tried for more than a week to um, battle covid you know, on her own at home, she had a lot of guilt and shame, as you mentioned, for the fact that she hadn't gotten vaccinated and she didn't want to go and admit herself to the hospital where she was working, where she knows people, she has friends, they know her story. Um, so she was just kind of suffering on her own in her home until she got to the point where she, you know, couldn't even get to the bathroom anymore without help, where she couldn't stand up in the shower. Um, and it was just getting harder and harder for her to breathe. Um, and so ultimately she agreed, um, to go get checked out. And, um, by the time she got to the hospital, she had double pneumonia in her lungs. She had sepsis. So she was very seriously ill by that point. Um, and as you said, I mean, she, she wasn't, you know, she didn't go on a ventilator. She wasn't hospitalized for a long period of time. But even so, the sensation that she had, as you said, was that someone was just sort of sapping her energy, that she was doing everything she could, you know, coaching herself along to take breath after breath, um, you know, kind of trying with all her might to fight this disease, to sit up, to change positions so she could draw a deeper breath of air. But it felt to her like no matter what she was doing, that um, this disease was just kind of taking over her body. Um, and so she she got out of the hospital after that. She ended up back in the hospital a couple of weeks later with a clot in her lungs um, and still, you know, has some of those long hauler symptoms even now. Um, and so. Yeah. Because she had those connections with the hospital, um, they kind of recruited her into sharing her personal story um, through her health department's social media accounts. She filmed a YouTube video with them, and she also spoke with us um, to share her story. Um, she feels that, you know, she still believes, you know, vaccination is a personal choice. She doesn't, you know, uh, disparage anybody for that, but she also wants people to know from her own experience that even someone who is young and healthy 
can really fall gravely ill, that there's no guarantees you'll be okay, and that she does regret not getting the vaccine. And so she just want, wanted to convey the pain that she and her family have been through as a result of her decision not to receive the vaccine. And as part of your story, um, you report, well, right now, 61.2% of eligible Utahns are fully vaccinated. And um, that number is certain to go up, but it's, it's still... Uh, relatively low. And I, I know that the health department, um, this is the the part of your, your reporting that I found interesting, the, the health department, or one of the pieces of your reporting that I found interesting, um, health officials are tracking people's perceptions of the vaccine, Bethany. Um, they have been doing surveys and trying to figure out why people are not getting vaccinated. And what, what are the reasons that people give for choosing not to get vaccinated? So um, the health department surveys are focusing most um, intensely on this group of people that are still open to vaccination. Um, so in their surveys, in one recent survey, about 17% of people just said flat out that they do not intend to get vaccinated. Um, and while the health department isn't giving up on those people, they're really focusing on a different group, which is 6% of people that have not yet been vaccinated, but like I said, are still open to it and intend to at some point. So within that 6%, um, the biggest reason that they cite for not having gotten vaccinated yet is that they're concerned about side effects. So about a quarter of people say that they're just worried about feeling poorly after they get the vaccine. Another group, about 20%, um, is worried about taking time away from work. They're, you know, just schedule conflicts or just don't feel that they could get that time off. Um, and then another, you know, about 13% of people are just sort of in a wait and see mode where they're, you know, just kind of, I guess, watching um, and waiting and biding their time. And at some point they'll maybe decide that they feel comfortable um, going in and getting vaccinated. And then there's a, another pretty big group that um, just said other that, you know, they, there's some other reason why they haven't done it yet. Hmm. Um I, boy, I, you know, we're going to run low on time here on this story as well, Bethany, and I, I think I'm going to bring in um, news columnist Robert Gerke because um, I want to ask, you know, we've got, as Bethany just said, 17% who simply just won't get vaccinated. Um, but then there are the visceral stories that are being told like that of uh, of Stormy, who, who Bethany's reporting highlights, and they are scary. And um, I wonder if you think those stories, you know, the stories of people who have gone through this, uh, will have a significant impact on people who have chosen, you know, not to get the vaccine for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the hope, and I think that's why the health department is tracking the the attitudes of people who haven't been vaccinated, so they can try to figure out how to reach those people. And I I, I think, you know, we're trying everything at this point to convince people to get vaccinated, and I think these stories are important, and they're becoming very common actually in terms of. You know, just the the numbers of people who are unvaccinated who are getting infected, I, especially, and I think this is maybe a point that's worth making in in Stormy's case in particular. In in rural Utah, um, you know, we're seeing some of our lowest vaccination rates, our highest vaccination hesitancy, and and you know, if we can reach those people, um, it's it's to our benefit. I mean, in in the in the past week. Um, one in 70 or the past two weeks, I'm sorry, one in 70, every 70 people in, in Duchesne County have, has tested positive. So this is, it's running rampant in rural Utah and, and, you know, maybe story stories like Stormy's will, um, you know, convince them because, you know, at this point, 
we've been vaccinating people for nine, 10 months now, and, and we still have this chunk of people who are uh, resistant. So I, we, we've got to, it, at some point, you know, you, you pull out all the stops, you do everything you can to try to reach them, and hopefully it does. There's um, quite a lot more to Bethany, your story. I mean, there's a, a pilot you, you talked to who um, didn't get the vaccine until he decided that the Delta variant was um, contagious enough, was worrisome enough that he felt like he had to do it. Um, and there's just so much more to go on to. Um, but I kind of want to squeeze in one more story that is totally unrelated to all the topics that we've been covering today before we head to a break and then our final segment, the underplayed stories of the week. And that's because, Bethany Rogers, um, you reported just today, uh, you know, the news broke yesterday that the Supreme Court is not going to halt the Texas law banning uh, most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. And th that vote was five to four. Bethany, you wrote a story that is online again at sltrib.com that looks at what this might mean, I guess, for the state of Utah or the implications for the state of Utah. The Texas law actually doesn't yet mean anything for our state, um, but this could be the beginning of something that eventually could mean something for our state. Meaning, can you lay out that situation for us, Bethany? Yeah, sure. I, um, you know, it's certainly something that. Um, uh, abortion rights advocates are watching carefully. They're very concerned about um, the fact that for a long time, the Supreme Court um, precedent has sort of provided a guarantee that states can't um, prevent abortions um, before the point of fetal viability. And so this ruling that or this, you know, decision that the Supreme Court just made um, kind of challenges that or, or weakens that guarantee and is very concerning to people in Utah who, you know, have been watching as the legislature over many years has sort of tried to chip away at abortion access, make it more difficult to get abortions and even tried to test that sort of fetal viability standard a couple of years ago, um, Utah lawmakers passed a bill that sought to ban most abortions after 18 weeks, which is, you know, um, a bit before um, the traditional fetal viability standard in many other states. That law is now being challenged in court and is one of those laws that, you know, the um, uh, anti-abortion advocates are sort of looking to if the Supreme Court opens the way for states to sort of each impose their own um, their own abortion law. Um, also in Utah, there's a law that would pretty much prohibit all abortions, all elective abortions. And that one is also poised to sort of kick into effect as soon as the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade or gives states the ability to um, regulate abortions. Um, so they're just kind of watching this once again to, to sort of read what the Supreme Court is going to do. And, um, you know, uh, hmm. abortion uh, rights groups are extremely concerned while abortion, um, anti-abortion groups are are hopeful about what this could mean for um for cases to come. Right. Um, you know what? That is a good summary, and I will I will urge people to go check out your story at sltrib.com. Um, but with that, we are going to head to uh, another break in the show before we come back with our underplayed stories of the week and then a conversation with Andy Larson about sporting events and the Delta, uh, the Delta variant of the coronavirus. You are listening to Behind the Headlines here on KCPW and Utah Public Radio. We'll be back in just a minute. 
This week in This American Life, Ken was in his 60s, living in a nursing home, when his friend David started publishing his thoughts about music. Like this one, about a Lefty Frizzell tune. Oh man, take me back. Take me right back to the Arizona desert. That kind of music gets you. So help me, it does. You got the moon and a sucker singing like this. Girls walking around. The music that connects us this week. Saturday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on Utah Public Radio. Support for UPR comes from our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Stay with us now for more Behind the Headlines, followed by UPR Presents at 10 o'clock and the Moth Radio Hour at 11. And you're listening to Behind the Headlines. I'm Roger McDonough with KCPW, joined by the Salt Lake Tribune's Becky Jacobs, Bethany Rogers, and Robert Gerke. And right now, very quickly, we will have to squeeze in our final segment of the show, the underplayed stories of the week. And uh, Becky Jacobs, we haven't heard from you for a little while. Let's uh, start with you. Do you have a pick for a story that people may have missed? Yeah, I got two quick picks. Um, We've got Peyton Harkin's profile of the new leader of Black Lives Matter Utah. Ray Duckworth is a great read. And also Colby Peterson wrote a story on um, clothing for transgender and non-binary Utahns about finding affirmation through clothing and um, things like that. So go check them out. All right. Check those out at sltrip.com. Robert Gerke, your pick for Underplayed Story of the Week. Um, Brian Shaw did a piece uh, sort of informing our readers that they can go online now and use the the redistricting tool to draw their own redistricting maps uh, or recommend redistricting maps to the committees that are responsible for that. Um, and it's I, I would encourage people to go give it a try. It's, it's not easy to do, and you probably get a better appreciation of what they're going through to try to draw these maps yeah. if, you, if you have a hand at it. So check that out. Okay. Um, and that's uh, at SL. I mean, you can find the story that Brian Schott wrote at sltrip.com. We will go to Bethany Rogers, your pick for Underplayed Story. My story uh, is by Sean P. Means, my colleague who wrote about the first Afghan refugee who arrived uh, in Utah, and it's a really interesting um, first-person account of what that trip was like. Okay. Um, that's a great pick as well. All of these are available at sltrip.com, and um, and they're great to check out. I'm going to forego my pick in the interest of time because we are out of time. And so, uh, Bethany Rogers, Becky Jacobs, and Robert Gerke, all with the Salt Lake Tribune, thank you for your coverage and for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good weekend. Roger. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. Uh, With that, we will turn now to my conversation with Salt Lake Tribune sports reporter and coronavirus data columnist Andy Larson, taking a look at the start of the college football season and what you need to know before you make a decision about attending games. I caught up with Andy on his phone along the banks of the Colorado River. Take a listen. Andy Larson, thanks for being here, as always. Thanks again for having me. So football season is upon us, but so is the season of the Delta variant of the coronavirus. A few of your readers suggested that you tackle the question of how safe or how unsafe it is to attend outdoor sporting events like college football games, um, given the current state of the pandemic. Because the United States doesn't do as good of a job as any other wealthy nation in tracking the spread of the virus, you looked at some data from Europe, analogous data from Football, not football, that is to say from (laughs) soccer, the European Soccer Championship. 
And uh, this was a lot of people gathering outdoors, uh, among other things. Uh, but yeah, what, what does the data tell us about sporting events and the spread of coronavirus, Andy? Yeah, you know, it's funny. There, there were a couple studies from America on college football and the NFL, but it's those studies kind of looked at more, more at community spread and uh, had differing results. One study found that basically there wasn't a, a large difference between places with and without football games. And uh, one study did find that there was a difference. So I, I wanted to look again where there was better data, right? Like when, when kind of the data leads us in two directions, I want to get better data so we know exactly what we're dealing with here. And in particular, Scotland and England have done a really good job at tracking each individual case and where it came from. So uh, with this Euro soccer tournament, they, they, found, uh, they, they found over 2,000 cases of the coronavirus, uh, 2,632 to be exact, um, that came from these European soccer matches or European soccer related events during this uh, three week tournament that happens every four years called the, the Euro soccer championship. You mentioned or related events, and it seemed like from the data, if I'm reading your article correctly, that more of the spread seemed to have come from those related events, from meaning from indoor events, people watching in bars or people traveling to the events in indoor settings. Can you can you talk about that? Yes. Right. So of that 2,600 people I, I mentioned earlier, those 2,600 cases that got it from a, a soccer-related case, if you will, 997 of them, about 1,000 of them, came from someone who uh, they got it at a bar watching the match. Um, and about another 1,923 came from Euro-related other settings, which when uh, the contract tracers kind of went through the notes of these people's phone calls, mostly found that they were traveling to and from a, a, a Euro match game. So, But whether by car or by plane, what have you, um, these people were going to either London or other parts of Europe to watch one of these matches. Um, and then, you know, there were uh, 727 cases, so less than the other two. But uh, of those cases that did come from people who attended the match, uh, one of the five matches that they studied, uh, and in particular, about 450 of those had gone to uh, the, the England versus Scotland match, which took place in London rather than in Scotland. And remember, this is a Scottish data set. So, um, again, it, it seemed like the, the most dangerous setting was not necessarily at the stadium itself, uh, but by traveling to or from these games or by watching the, you know, watching the match in a bar, a crowded bar with a lot of people. Which makes sense. I mean, that's what we know. We know that indoor settings are particularly uh, a dangerous spot. Correct. And, and so, you know, we can, because we know, you know, the, the attendance of those games and, and attendance was reduced at them, we can actually even kind of figure out what percentage of people who went to those games got the, got the coronavirus, right? And it actually is relatively significant. So I don't want to downplay that necessarily. Um, you know, so for example, uh, the, the final um, hosted about 60,000 fans in a stadium that usually holds about 100,000. And they found that about 3,400 people had gotten the coronavirus either in that stadium or in kind of the surrounding areas, at, at whether the, the kiosks or, you know, all of the other kind of nearby things. You know, and then, of course, I feel like the thing that we're always trying to convey is that that jump in cases, you know, from attending the sporting event leads to an auxiliary jump in cases out in the community, meaning that it's not just about your elevated risk. It, it then spreads from there, correct? I mean, we can tie more cases from the spiking cases at the Euro final to more community spread. Yeah, and, and it's kind of cool how uh, the, the researchers in the UK did this, but they looked at 
just kind of the difference between men and women cases uh, in the UK over the course of the pandemic. And, you know, essentially up until June and July when this tournament was occurring, there was no difference between the number of men and women who were getting coronavirus. And then in the wake of this, it was significantly more men as the tournament progressed. And, and in particular, as those people who got coronavirus in these soccer-related events pass it on to their you know, college-age friends, their, their family, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and, and then you know, we can actually see in the Scotland data uh, you know, kind of the, the second and third degree effects of the people who getting it in these soccer related events, passing it on, and then those people passing it on and so on, creating a much larger wave. Okay. And then I want to get to sort of the, the advice, if you have advice, obviously, if, if you're not vaccinated, you shouldn't go to these events. You shouldn't both travel to the event or go to any indoor settings that are associated with them. How about if you are vaccinated? I mean, Andy, should you go? Maybe you shouldn't go even if you are vaccinated? Look, I'm, I'm, I think it's one of those things where, again, you have to take into account your risk factors. And, you know, I, I think being vaccinated, you have to take into account which vaccine you got. You know, I think we, we have good research that says, hey, look, Moderna is probably better than Pfizer is probably better than Johnson & Johnson at this point. Um, you want to obviously take into your personal, you know, your comorbidities, your, your weight, your age whether or not you have some of those pre-existing conditions that we know lead to worse outcomes if you do get a breakthrough case. Um, and then, of course, your friends and family, the people that you live with and see on a regular basis, are they at risk? You know, So I think you also have to know that, hey, if, if you do get the coronavirus, what happens to those people? You, you want to think about that. So um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that don't go to college football games. I, I'm saying you want to make this calculus before you, you know, know what you're getting into. As, as you know, Roger, I'm a, I'm a big sports guy. I love going to sporting events. Um, I, I don't want to make this blanket statement of, hey, no one should go to them right now. But um, it is something that, you know, if, if there is reason to be cautious, you should be cautious. This is the thing that I grapple with, Andy. I mean, maybe I'm not so worried personally about being a breakthrough infection from the Delta variant um, because, you know, most breakthrough infections are mild. And, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. I have the Moderna vaccine. Um but I, I might have a breakthrough infection, and then it may be mild for me, but I may spread it to someone who will then spread it on to someone else who will get very sick despite their being vaccinated. And that's a tough calculus for me to, to have to weigh the fact that it's not necessarily my own comorbidities or right. the people next to me, but the people adjacent to them and so on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it, it is tough, right? Like this, this world is an unfair world that we live in that is like, that, the, you know, it, it, the, the pandemic has messed up this moral calculus where I think a lot of us, um, yeah. I would say this, I, I would say that, I mean, as, as bad as it is to say, uh, I, I think the Delta variant is so transmissible. I mean, we're talking about a, uh, coefficient, uh, a, a contagion coefficient, I should say, of about six people, which means that the average person gives it to about six people on average, right? If, if there weren't any other, if no one was vaccinated, if no one was masked, et cetera. I, I think because Delta is so contagious, like it is kind of the thing that it, it's going to be difficult for people to escape, um, you know, mm. getting uh, even those, those, uh, those people in high risk. I, I, I I don't know. I struggle with this too, Roger. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I do. And I think we I think we both have those same kind of thoughts like, OK, you know, when is it appropriate to rejoin normal life to some extent? And, you know, what is the responsibility to the communities that we live in? 
the moral quandary. Um, well, Andy Larson from the banks of the Colorado River, thanks for joining us. <laughs> thanks again. Yeah. Again, that's uh, Tribune Sports and pandemic data reporter Andy Larson. Um, by the way, Andy clarified to me after that interview that it isn't that he thinks that everyone is going to catch coronavirus because of the Delta variant. Uh, in fact, he thinks that the uh, that booster shots may help the vaccinated escape infection. But Andy says that, um, you know, basically one way or another, we will all eventually have immunity. Check out his article on this and uh, everything else that we've been covering over at sltrib.com. And that does it for our show today. You can find podcasts over at kcpw.org. Behind the Headlines is a co-production of the Salt Lake Tribune and KCPW. I'm Roger McDonough. Join us again next week and have a great Labor Day weekend, everyone. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Golden West Insurance Services, providing Utah State University alumni affordable options on auto, homeowners, RV, and umbrella policies. Available at any Golden West or USU Credit Union branch from Logan to St. George. Details at usucu.org. The West's relationship with water is complicated, and it's only getting more complex. Last year was considerably dry, maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. I think it's been described as a slow-moving train wreck. I'm Alex Hager, reporting on the water issues that define the Western U.S. Listen for stories about the Colorado River Basin on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.